News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi. Well, have you ever heard of something called the Mandela Effect, a phenomenon characterized by consistent false memories that many people have, often about the same things and details of events or items in pop culture? It was a term first coined by Fiona Broom, a paranormal researcher, after a discussion about Nelson Mandela, where she discovered that a lot of people actually believed that he had passed away while in prison in the 1980s. And there are other examples of this as well. Well, Dr. Holly Schiff joins us now, clinical psychologist at South County Psychiatry in Connecticut. Dr. Schiff, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's an interesting phenomenon and looking at some of the other instance or other things that, that a lot of people seem to have false memories about, we'll get into those. But what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on this, uh, this Mandela effect? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think, you know, as a psychologist, I find it cognitively very interesting. And as you mentioned, it's basically a false memory. But what's interesting is that it's a collective false memory. So you have a large segment of the population kind of misremembering the same thing. And like you said, it started with that widespread false memory of Nelson Mandela dying. And everyone thought he died in the 1980s in prison, but that actually wasn't accurate at all. However, if you interview people and you talk to them, it's not just, oh, yeah, I think I remember that. They actually have very vivid remembrances of news coverage and all these things of things that never actually happened. So why do you think that happens around certain events that people that it kind of takes off that way and becomes this what people think is a true memory, but it's not? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a couple of things that kind of contribute to that. So first of all, if you think about, you know, psychologically and just when it comes to memories, so it's the idea of a false memory. So basically you're having a distorted recollection of an event. And although, I mean, our memories are not perfect and they're very suggestible. So if you get information from another person or maybe you see something online or on social media, I feel like that can definitely influence your memory and then it can kind of change our memories over time and I think if you think about where we are now kind of in this digital age with you know the internet and all that I think that definitely plays a large role because you can spread misinformation really quickly that way Um, and you know if you see something online you see a post or you see a comment where people are saying incorrect things that actually becomes incorporated into your memory as a fact. Um, And the more you remember something repeatedly, it actually builds your confidence in the memory. So even if it's growing more inaccurate over time, your brain is actually believing it more and more more over time. So I think that's one of the main factors Um, from a neuroscience perspective. When you're recalling memories versus, you know, remembering them perfectly, again, you're influencing them. So eventually they can become false. Like I said, memory is not infallible. It can be unreliable. And if you think about it, it's like playing a game of telephone. So each time you're recalling a memory in your brain, you're actually distorting it and it becomes altered with each retelling. So we're actually rewriting our memory each time you remember something. Hmm. Even though I guess what struck me as odd about this particular, the the Mandela effect is when Mm -hmm. Nelson Mandela was released from prison, very much alive, it was a huge Mm -hmm. story and it got a ton of coverage and it was a really big deal. So it just seems strange that that particular story is one that so many people are remembering very incorrectly. Right, exactly. And it's, I mean, this effect too, I mean, it's so common. I mean, it's relatively harmless. I think it's very jarring sometimes for people and they realize, oh my gosh, I've been misremembering something this whole time. But I mean, it's, it's very normal. It's very natural. It makes sense. And obviously our brain wants to try and connect dots. So there's this other um, thing called confabulation. So that's where your brain is trying to fill in gaps that are missing. So I'll remember details that didn't happen or kind of just generate details in order to compensate for any holes in the memory because you want to make something make sense however it makes sense to you. Uh, there are some other uh, examples of things, mm-hmm. and I will fully admit I looked down this list and I remembered <laughs> things that I thought, oh, of course, yep. nope, that's not the case. And, and one of the top mm-hmm. ones is, is Mr. Monopoly, which people, even yep. hearing that, I'm sure, will, will conjure up an image. And whether or not he has a monocle, which a lot of people think mm-hmm. he did, but he never, he has never had one. 
Exactly. And that's, you know, that's one of my favorite examples. And again, I think it's just our brain trying to fill in the gaps. You think about him as the mascot and kind of what he represents and, you know, what he's wearing. And it just, it would make sense and it would be fitting that, oh yeah, he would be wearing a monocle. But right, if you actually look back to the, you know, the box or anything like that, he's not. And there's, there's a lot of examples. Another one that I like, which is such a simple one, is Curious George. Everyone thinks that he had a tail. Now, yes, logically, that would make sense because monkeys have tails. But if you actually go and look at a picture of Curious George, he doesn't have a tail. <laughs> which is bizarre, too, because I, I was looking at that and, and people have distinct memories of pictures of Curious George hanging in trees right. from his tail. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's so many. And then there are even ones that are just... You know, if you think about, you know, if you walk through the candy aisle in a store, um, Kit Kat, the candy bar, everyone thinks that's hyphenated and spelled with a hyphen, but it's not. It's just the two words next to each other. Hmm. Is it better or worse, do you think, with with more exposure to the Internet and to social media where it's quicker to research things and look for things? Or is there also more false information then? I feel like that's a double-edged sword, especially now with, you know, AI and Photoshop. I mean, you can really craft an image of something that never existed. So now that'll get implanted in your memory because you'll see it and you'll believe it. Um, Like another one, um, Mickey Mouse um, never wore suspenders. So if you think about his outfit, it would make sense. You know, it has the buttons, you know, his little shorts, and that he would be wearing suspenders. Now someone could kind of doctor an image and put suspenders on him. So now that fits your brain's narrative of what you think made sense that will get implanted in your visual memory. And now you'll think, oh, yeah, he was always wearing suspenders. But at the same time, if you use the Internet correctly, you know, to research and consult reliable sources, you could look back to, you know, original images of things like that. Or Pikachu, the Pokemon character, everyone thinks he has a black-tipped tail. His whole tail is solid yellow. So you can find people who doctored it to have what you believe it was. Um, But again, I mean, if you look at the right sources or original sources of things, you can, you know, find the correct information. And I think that exposure to the correct details will help you rebuild your memory. And so what are the the dangers then? I mean, if you go through life thinking that Mickey Mouse has suspenders Mm -hmm. and he doesn't, not a big deal, really. It's probably not going to change your life all that much. But what are some of the Mm -hmm. dangers of more and more false memories and uh, remembering things and events that, that not the way they happened? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, right, like you said, you know, most false memories are relatively harmless. It's, you know, not malicious, and it's just a reconstruction of a memory that doesn't align with, you know, true events. Um, However, I think it can be dangerous if it's, you know, about things that are more important or significant, and you walk around thinking that that is the truth, or if you're then spreading that to other people and kind of spreading that misinformation and getting other people on board with something that isn't true. And I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, pop culture or, you know, cartoon characters, those things don't matter. But if it's historical events or political figures and things like that, I think that's where it starts to get a little bit dangerous because now we're talking about people, places and things that aren't exactly true. Um, You know, and you could be getting into slander and libel and, you know, things that you believe and you're kind of putting that out to others when that actually isn't the case. So obviously we always want to be, you know, speaking from a place of truth and fact um, and being able to kind of fact check those things. So I think it's always important to kind of know your facts before, you know, you start telling other people things. I think that's the danger. It's the spread of it um, online or to other people. Um, But within yourself too, right, you don't want to start, you know, misbelieving things and and being admin of, no, Nelson Mandela died in prison in the 1980s. I mean, you could go on living your life that way, and that's not too harmless, and it doesn't really matter. Um, But, you know, then you're kind of living in some false narrative and that, you know, something like that. I have seen patients like that. That's more concerning to me in terms of like psychotic symptoms or kind of living in an alternate reality or maybe you believe in a lot of conspiracy theories and things like that. That's where it would start to concern me in terms of having those faulty memories. All right, Dr. Holly Schiff, thank you so much for your time this morning. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, fear not. If you are a fan of Succession, we are talking about it now, but we are not going to give anything away. So you can keep listening. Mornings with Simi contributor Scott Chance is here again. You're a big fan of this show. 
Yeah, huge fan, huge fan, Jill. Uh, but you you didn't watch it. You're not like last night was the finale right. of the of the whole thing, and you, so you haven't watched Succession. You're not into it. I have not. I tried a couple of years ago. I tried. I watched a couple of episodes. I, I don't know. I did, maybe I just wasn't in the right frame of mind. I, I never got into it. Yeah, it's certainly one of those. It's HBO, so you know they try to really push the boundaries there. It's about you know family and excess wealth and the media and a whole bunch of things. Succession. It's about like you know uh, who's going to take over a company when a when an aging father passes away. But it's pretty rough. You know, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of characters that you want to root for in it. Uh, but one of the things that really strikes you from the very beginning of the show is the music. Uh, some people have said that it uses music better than any show in history. But it's really subtle. Uh, there's this weird blend of classical that you get throughout it, but it's also mixed with hip hop. It starts right from the very beginning. So if you haven't heard it, this is the theme song from the show. I'll just play you a little clip. So you have that, and then I I isolated a part of it, so this is just the piano, which feels, you know, sort of classical, sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. bourgeois, but underneath it you have this which is this kind of like hip hoppy beat. So this was put together by a composer named Nicholas Brittell, and he's kind of like this classical composer who's really into hip hop music. And uh, one of the main characters in the show, Kendall Roy, if you know the show, again, this is spoiler free, but if you know the show, you know him, and he's really, really into hip hop. And one of the interesting dichotomies that has come up, he's this son of a billionaire, and he's into this music that is birthed out of poverty. At one point in the show, he actually even tries to rap at a performance for his dad. It's like the cringiest thing on TV. You get secondhand embarrassment watching it. If you've seen the show, you know what I'm talking about. But I think that's kind of the point behind it. Like, can people of wealth truly understand art that's created out of desperation, like hip-hop kind of was. It's kind of like blues. Like I said, it was birthed out of poverty. So I talked to Griff Rolofsson. He's a professor of music at the University College of Cork in Ireland. He's written books on this topic. And I asked him about whether or not a character like Kendall can live in both of these worlds. So I think, yeah, like you say, people can read, I think, you know, from the opening theme song, this sort of split, split world. And so I think we all get get it at some level but like any good show you know it offers tidbits for like the serious heads and i mean that's a that's a hip-hop thing too of course the gems that's actually the research project that i'm working on right now is those coded bits of knowledge that if you get really deep into hip-hop um these things stick out and you just you know it makes your spine tingle because you're like oh my gosh he linked up that and he doubly signified this thing and flipped it on this so yeah, I, I, they're they're definitely like Easter eggs in the show in that regard. Yeah, I try to explain some of that stuff to like people in my life who are casual hip hop fans. They listen to Jay Z a, a little bit, and I'm like, you see, he's like talking about this. What he did, you know, like X person made this album like ten years ago, and he's like tipping his hat, and like they're like, okay, whatever. But like you say, for the people who want it, those things are there. The show is is no less enjoyable. Uh, even if, if you don't get it. So yeah, that's a cool thing. So, okay. Now I'm white. I didn't grow up in the hood. Um, but I can still like, there's a part of me that can identify with some of the stuff that hip hop is talking Mm -hmm. about. Like I can, I can identify that there are certain things wrong with society, but that the, the wrong thing to do is to appropriate that. Like sometimes we might see Kendall doing in the show. Is there a way around that or should hip hop kind of live where it lives? It's not a simple matter, but but what it comes down to is a rather simple uh, question of wanting the music, but not wanting the people. There is this um, there is this thing in the history of of um, American popular music of wanting this sort of deep you want the. You want the music, but you don't want the people associated with the music. And so, the way that the way that I, um, you know, teach teach my students at University College Cork here. Um, you know, I'm I'm from the U.S., but have been over here almost a decade. And I try to teach, um, you know, this way. If if you're really into this music, and especially if you want to perform this music, go talk to the people who made this music. Mm. 
Um, or if you're really into this music and you want to support, the, if you believe politically or artistically, you know, go support um, not just the artists when they tour, but support the communities, donate to causes, yeah. Yeah. and support causes, vote, you know. Um, like I'm just thinking of the the scene that L, L to the OG, um, when Kendall is rapping, it actually is in the sort of context of this um, arts benefit with these black ballet dancers. Yeah. And, and you can see that, you know, it's there's this really um, tricky sort of dance that happens there. But you see how, you know, there's a lot of PR throughout the show and the spin totally. of, of supporting these things. But but really, yeah, what it comes down to is um, recognize where it c- comes from. And if you really love it, then do the work, do your homework. Yeah. Griff Rolfson, he's professor of music at University College of Cork, and he's written Flip the Script, European Hip Hop and the Politics of Post-Coloniality and Critical Access, Watch the Throne and the Gilded Age. And of course, he has a ton of uh, information on Succession and the soundtrack there. Thanks, Scott. And uh, you can check out Critical Access at criticalaccess.org. Griff, thanks so much. Anytime, Scott. You got to watch Jill. It's like, I mean, the music angle is very cool and yes. it's, it's like inside, but the show itself is just exceptionally well done. So, so the criticism I've heard is it's horrible people doing horrible things and it leaves you with a really big icky feeling. But my, I'm taking from your take on it and, and a lot of other people that that's part of it, but it's definitely worth watching. Yeah, I, it, it definitely, it's not like, it's not like a feel good show, <laughs> but it does a really cool thing to illustrate. It like it illustrates how out of touch these people are, and that's kind of what I was really into with this hip hop thing. Because like as a fan of music and of hip hop and stuff, these guys try to embrace this and they try to live kind of normal lives, but they're totally incapable of doing that, you know? And you just see, it's like, I wouldn't, oh, I'd love to be a billionaire and have all this money, but their their lives are just awful. It seems awful, <laughs> you know? So maybe there's like a silver lining there that it's like, oh, my life's not so bad. I don't need a billion dollars. Hmm. Are there any characters that you watch it and you like the characters? Uh, I mean, there are characters that are funny. There are characters that are like, oh, this is great. I love it when he's on screen because it's really entertaining, but there's like no no one in the show that I would want to go and have a beer with. <laughs> like, no one. It's awful. Wow. Yeah. And, and how many seasons? Four, Four seasons. Yeah. So it's not a crazy, like, long. It's not like watching Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> That don't even get me started on that show. <laughs> All right. So people, yeah, people like me who maybe have not watched it, that's not a huge commitment. You can go back and binge it and figure out what all the hype is about. Sure, yeah. It's all great. All right. I make no promises, but I will check it out. Okay. <laughs> This is Mornings with Simi. The numbers are quite staggering. Almost 12,000 deaths, all attributed to illegal toxic drugs or illicit drugs since it was declared an emergency in this province back in 2016. We know there have been several attempts. There are tools that are being used to help those that are at risk of overdosing. And my next guest has come up with a new tool. Alex McGovern is the Director of Technology Development for Life Guard Digital Health and joins us on the line now. Alex, good morning to you. Hey, good morning. How are you doing? Very well. How about you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Well, no problem. I'm so glad you could join the show and talk about this. So you have invented a wearable device, and this is to help detect and prevent overdoses. Tell us about it. Yeah, so what we're working on is a device that's a lot like uh, smartwatches or fitness trackers that people have, except this one's main function is to, as you said, detect overdoses. Um, So what it would do is it would use the person's vital signs, track those. Once those go out of a normal range or they're indicative of an overdose occurring, uh, we would set off an alarm. If the person wasn't to silence the alarm because they were unable to, then we would contact emergency services and let them know their location um, and any other information that they would need to know in order for them to respond and so how how does it actually work? Or Because I understand, too, it doesn't need Wi-Fi or you don't need a connection, which, which seems like that makes it a lot more uh, kind of uh, versatile. But how does it actually work and, and what does it pick up on? So there's a key, there's a couple of key uh, vital signs that we track um, without giving away too much. Um, we, we really look at the heart rate, your blood oxygen levels. Um, and your respiratory rate are the main three. Uh, there's a couple others that we're, we're investigating to see if they would be uh, you 
know, more useful or, or be able to predict faster. Um, but those three are the main ones. And then as far as the connection, it works all on LTE. So uh, it just uses a cellular connection, a lot like Apple Watches and I think Samsung Watches as well have that LTE option. And that just means that somebody doesn't need a cell phone in order to use the watch. And that makes it a lot more um, accessible for people who do not have cell phones or don't have data plans for their cell phones. Right. And does it look like a, a fitness tracker or what does it look like? Yeah, so we're trying to design it so it is as uh, inconspicuous as possible. So if somebody's wearing it, it, it won't be a, you know, oh, hey, I know that you're wearing one of the, the watches that detects drug overdoses. Um, our goal is to, you know, help people um, protect themselves and hopefully it's something they wear often so that they're protected more often than they aren't. And in order to do that, we want to try to make it um, blend in as much with a lot of the other fitness trackers. So we kind of, you know, steal some, uh, some design uh, cues from those. Right. And because I was curious about that lately and exactly what you just said, if it kind of if it's a a telltale sign or something that then somebody might not want to wear it exactly for that reason that you know what it's for. Whereas if it's kind of inconspicuous, it's it would I would think it would kind of have a broader appeal. Yeah, exactly. So that was our goal on the the design part. And um, originally, I'm not a a designer. I don't make things look pretty, but uh, (laughs) Luckily, I have a, you know good team members, and, and we're working with people that uh, are making it look all nice and smooth. And I think you touched on this. Uh, if it's say it sends out a, a false alarm, or it it alerts, uh, or it's about to alert emergency crews, but somebody is actually okay, is there a way for somebody to override it so it's not calling emergency crews or first responders when they're not needed? Um, we haven't 100% figured out the best way to do that. We're working with BCEHS right now, um, and uh, Lifeguard has the Lifeguard Connect app that's already live and has already saved 66 lives across BC. Um, so we are borrowing cues from that where how that works is if an emergency call goes out, what EMS will do is they will make a call back to the phone that the person was using, and that will be kind of their double check to make sure if it was a false alarm or if the person needs attention. So we might do something similar where because we have a cellular connection on the watch, we might be able to do some sort of callback. Um, but we're still working out with them on, on what's going to be the best way to reduce the number of false alarms. Right. And at this point, then, do you have a, a target date as far as when this uh, will be made available to people? Um, yeah. So we are working on a long-term research project that uh, we received a grant for. So we that project will take us through the finishing of development, the starting of testing, um, and then right into beta testing with, you know, people in a, a kind of real environment. Um, and that one ends, uh, goes through to the end of 2025. So we'd be looking at uh, end of 2025, uh, early 2026. And is it too early or do you have an idea at this point on what the cost might be? Um, a little too early to say the cost uh, specifically. Um, our goal is to make it as affordable as possible, so it's as accessible as possible, um, and then try to see how we can subsidize that price as much as possible for the people who need it. All right. Well, a very interesting invention and uh, the work that's gone into it. Alex, uh, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. That is Alex McGovern, Director of Technology Development for Lifeguard Digital Health. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, the City Development Permit Board in Vancouver is set to make a decision later today on whether or not to approve what has become a controversial condo development in the heart of Chinatown. This deals with a court ruling that ordered the planning officials in the city reconsider a project. This is the same project that was before the board back in 2017, a nine-story mixed-use building at 105 Street. Street. The uh, court ruling, again, sends this project back to the Development Permit Board, but there is still a fair amount of opposition. Joining us now to talk a little bit more about that is Beverly Ho, Executive Director of Yarrow Intergenerational Society for Justice. Beverly, thank you so much for being here. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. What are your main concerns with this proposal? Um, our main concerns are that the entire tower is for market rate um, condos and there isn't a single unit for um, those like of affordable housing, especially for those who are on fixed income. Um, yeah, so we think it'll gentrify the neighborhood and uh, increase unaffordability. When the developer first brought uh, a, pr- a project for this site forward, that was, I think, even before the 2017 uh, redone proposal, the original proposal for the site did have uh, housing that would have been below market. It did have some units of social housing. Uh, do you think that was a better plan? Um, it was marginally better, but we support the community's vision for 100% um, shelter rate housing at at the site because it's very much needed in the neighborhood. And even though a lot of folks are feeling the pinch when it comes to housing and uh, finding affordable housing, um, those who are on fixed income like PWD or old age security, um, CPP are um, they they have the hardest time finding clean and dignified safe housing in the neighborhood. So with the idea then of wanting it to be 100% social housing, and uh, I know there are other groups that are calling for that as well, that's not going to be something that the developer, the owner of this property is going to be putting forward. What would you like to see then? Would you like to see it sell or the city take it over or another group somehow take it over? Yeah, we would hope that um, all three levels of government uh, collaborate to acquire the site from private developer BD Living, um, because it's their responsibility to house uh, to house folks and to build housing that um, folks need. Because in recent years at Yarrow, we've seen an influx in unhoused and precariously housed seniors, a lot of seniors staying in shelters and couch surfing, um, and a lot of newer developments in the neighborhood definitely cater to a higher income demographic resulting in other businesses uh, like heritage businesses or affordable Chinese businesses closing down and leaving the neighborhood. I want to play for you uh, just uh, one of the comments made. This was Jordan Eng, who is the president of the Vancouver Chinatown Business Improvement Association. Uh, He was speaking last week about this. I just want to play uh, one, uh, one comment that he made about the project. It's exactly the same project that came out in 2017 that was rejected. Uh, but, uh, you know, what it does do, it, it, you know, this, this piece of land has been a parking lot since the 1970s. And uh, uh, Chinatown has had a tough four years with COVID, the anti-Asian uh, uh, attacks on our institutions, the graffiti, uh, the mental health and social disorder that we've, we, we've suffered. And uh, the project brings life to the neighborhood. It brings people. It brings eyes to the street. It supports the businesses. So how do you respond to that with, with Jordan Ang and he and, and some of the other legacy groups saying that this project is needed? It will bring people to the area. It will bring more residents. It'll make it more vibrant. Yeah, the, the project um, as is, or the proposal as is, will definitely uh, bring more folks to the neighborhood should it go through. Um, but again, we want to prioritize those who are already living here um, or who call this um, neighborhood their community to be able to have housing as well. And we think that um, just because someone is low income doesn't mean that uh, they shouldn't have uh, a high quality, high quality housing as well. And we know that there are some head tax survivors and families who, because this, site is next to situated next to the memorial the chinatown memorial um they want redress in in the form of housing and and does it have to be at that specific site because one of the uh, one of the arguments or one part of the conversation as well has been that there are other discussions taking place for exactly that thing for more housing for housing that was specifically uh, be for lower income seniors in Chinatown at different sites in the community, maybe not all at 105 Kiefer? Yeah, it would be great if there was um, 
several sites that had uh, low-income housing or uh, purpose-built seniors housing, um, not just at 105 Kiefer, but again, the site is culturally significant and the current proposal has 111 market units, which would um, have a big impact on the neighborhood, like the current um, towers that came up in the past few years along Main Street. Um, yeah, so uh, even if, if the tower is 111 units of shelter rate housing, it's um, it won't be enough to solve the homelessness crisis, but um, it would make a, a difference for sure. And and when you talk about the, the impact on the neighbourhood as well, uh, I know some people have raised concerns about the look of this building as also in that it, it's not perhaps looking traditional. It looks more like the, the surrounding newer buildings. Is, is that a concern as well, that, that the kind of the outside or the facade of the building looks different or maybe doesn't fit in with the existing develop, existing buildings in that particular part of the community? Um, it is a bit of a concern, but again, the exterior does not matter as much as um, the content of the building or the residents who will be able to afford it. Um, so, yeah, we hope the, the government will prioritize building social housing um, on the site that's, that's much needed as we struggle to house seniors at Yero. Uh, what's being planned or are you taking part in uh, I understand that there's a, a protest about this happening this afternoon and uh, going to City Hall to voice their concerns yes that's correct so last Thursday um, we had our community consultation at 105 Kiefer on the memorial site and uh, over 500 folks showed up um, most of whom were from the neighborhood seniors from the neighborhood and it was a nearly unanimous vote for 100% uh, shelter rate housing at 105 Kiefer. So we'll be presenting that to the Development Permit Board later this afternoon. Uh, are you concerned that this time around, given the uh, the support with the other legacy groups in Chinatown, those that, that were opposed to this in 2017 and that they are now in favor of this project, d- does that concern you at all that the Development Board might look at that and and make a decision based on the, uh, the number of groups that are in favor? Um, yes, a little bit, because it, the same proposal was already rejected six years ago, so... Um, yeah, we're hoping that they'll listen to and center the voices of low-income seniors in the community who are having the most challenges with, with finding adequate housing. All right. Beverly, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's get right to it and check in with head coach of the BC Lions, Rick Campbell. Good morning to you. Good morning. It's good to talk to you again. It's been a while. It has. It's been a really long time. So, And lots to get to as well. A preseason loss in Saskatchewan. What's it like, though, making all those roster decisions? There are so many young players out there performing. Yeah, it's, this is a tough time of year. I would say the least favorite part is telling someone that they don't have a job. So, that part's tough, but uh, the exciting thing is, is um, is you whittle down the roster, and and we made we've made quite a, fit, a bit more few moves. Um, it's it's just exciting to get the team together, and we're getting really close now. So we play Calgary on Thursday at home in a preseason game, and then we play in Calgary ten days from now. So it's all coming very quickly. And this is coming off the heels, isn't it, of uh, the the camp or the practice days that took place in Kamloops? Or that are yeah, that are we're taking place. Still yeah. up here. We're still up here for two more days. So we practice this morning and then we practice tomorrow morning and then we'll start heading back to uh, the Vancouver area and then uh, get ready for the regular season. And talk a bit, if you can, uh, about uh, the quarterback room a little deeper than it was last year. Yeah, we're really fortunate to have uh, three guys this year in Vernon Adams and, and Dane Evans and Dominique Davis, who are all very experienced CFL quarterbacks and they're all playing really well, which is good news for us. And um, you know, you want to keep all those guys. You can never have uh, too many quarterbacks. So we're fortunate in that department. And um, um, I think it'll make our football team better. Well, I know certainly uh, people are really looking forward to, to seeing more of this and seeing how things play out. Uh, one other uh, area to talk about, though, the running back battle. How is that shaping up? 
Yeah, it's it's been pretty good. Again, they're, they're guys that are new to the CFL, but they're not new to pro football. They're guys that have uh, been in the NFL, and so they're they have a little bit more experience, which is good. And we're going to let that play out. We've kind of kept an open mind because these guys are new to us, and so they'll play again um, at BC Place on Thursday, and then uh, we'll make a decision after that. Well, again, I know the fans are going to be waiting and closely watching what that decision is. Really exciting times for the team. Rick, we'll leave it there for this morning, but great to chat with you again. Thank you very much. We'll see everyone Thursday. All right, sounds good. That is Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. And yes, all eyes looking to Thursday. That's going to be a good one. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, one city councillor in Vancouver is going to be putting forward a motion, and this is a motion to ban infrastructure that has natural gas hookups in newly built homes when we're talking about things like cooking and fireplaces. This is going to the May 31st Standing Committee on Policy and Strategic Priorities Agenda, and Councillor Adrian Carr is the councillor behind this and joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for making some time this morning. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Jill. So what specifically would you like to see when it comes to the use or the non-use, I suppose, of natural gas and in homes in Vancouver? Uh, well, first, let's start with new homes. Um, I think it was an error for us to not have included um, the uh, uh, keeping gas out of in this methane. I mean, I, I want to just correct when you said natural gas. Most people think natural gas, but it's actually over 90% methane, um, and so which is a very, very bad gas in terms of uh, the power to change our climate about 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, so my so we did do as a council changes to our bylaws to say in new homes in new buildings um, that we would not allow gas methane to be used for um, the space heating and hot water heating. But we did not include um, for gas stoves or methane stoves or fireplaces that ornamental fireplaces that homes have, which. Um, totally doesn't make sense, number one, because um, it will cost more to put both gas and electricity kind of in the same in the, at the same time. And it's cheaper uh, when you build a new home to actually eliminate any gas infrastructure. And from a climate point of view, it makes no sense when scientists are saying, look, this is such a dire situation in terms of climate change, we absolutely cannot be expanding fossil fuel infrastructure. Makes no sense to allow it in new buildings, which are the best way and the easiest way for us to stop the use of fossil fuels. But when we're talking about natural gas and BC's natural gas industry, I mean, BC exports most of its natural gas. So by even by if you ban this in new builds, in new homes in the city, it doesn't stop the use of natural gas. It just shifts it to another area, doesn't it? Uh, well, I would absolutely hope, Jill, that we have uh, that, that politicians at all federal, provincial and local levels are recognizing um, that we cannot keep expanding our fossil fuel infrastructure and our use of fossil fuels. Um, so I hope that we are going to see legislation change at the federal and provincial levels, which is going to decrease and hopefully decrease quickly um, the use of fossil fuels. And that includes methane gas. Um, and uh, and every, in my mind, we shouldn't leave any stone unturned. Um, so for the city to be able to use our power over our building bylaw to forbid the infrastructure building uh, for in, in new builds, uh, new buildings for gas really makes a lot of sense. Something we can do. What do you say, though, to people that uh, cook with natural gas, that prefer natural gas? I mean, the amount that we're talking about in a city the size of Vancouver, again, if you look at the worldwide market of natural gas and BC's exports, the amount we're talking about in the city of Vancouver is minuscule. Uh, for, first of all, if everybody took the attitude that gee, our, our you know, contribution to global warming is just small, therefore, therefore we don't have to do anything, um, we will never address the problem. And that is the main reason why we haven't addressed the problem. People are always pointing to someone else to say, oh, you're the bigger cause of this problem, so you do um, measures 
first, and then maybe we'll do them later. But no, everyone has to start now. Jill, scientists are saying we are past the point of no return. We each and every one of us, whether you're an individual or a business or local government or senior government, we have to do whatever we can within our power to reduce the use of fossil fuels. So this is a measure that the city of Vancouver can make. So to your question, what do I say uh, to, to people around this? Well, there's two other reasons why we really need to look at the uh, elimination of, um, of, of gas in homes for cooking and fireplaces. Number one, um, many celebrity chefs are now saying, look, cooking with induction is more efficient, um, it is healthier, and it is um, just as as fast, and it doesn't reduce the GH, it doesn't um, cause the increase in GHGs uh, for global warming. And the second reason is scientists, including, I'm sorry, uh, physicians, including the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, CAPE, um, have actually spoken to council. Uh, Dr. Melissa Lamb, they're, they're, um, the head of the, that organization, several times has said that they are absolutely con- um, uh, verifying uh, that the burning of methane in homes for cooking, for example, is causing increased rates of asthma amongst children, um, that it, it actually you know, poses other kind of health risks for adults, respiratory illnesses, etc. So, you know, for the sake of our children, for their health, as well as the health of our, our planet, you know, it just makes sense to, uh, to stop, especially, as they say, in the, in the new buildings. Right. So, although, uh, and I, I know what you're referring to as far as uh, the doctors that have come out saying that, but it seems like every time there's a report or a study that says that's happening, there's an equal study or report with other doctors saying, hold on a second, that's not actually the case. There seems to be a lot of, of a difference of opinion on that. On this one, there's not. Um, if you just Google, you know, the uh, uh, use of gas in, in homes and health effects on children, you will find abundant literature. I just was looking up an American Public Health Association study that said in the United States, one in eight children with asthma um, are due to do the pollution from methane stoves. Um, so it's verified. It's not, um, you know, something that is controversial. It, it's, uh, it, you know, the health effects are there and we have to heed them. Uh, where does the money come from? If this was to go ahead and uh, the change is made to buildings, uh, new builds in Vancouver, where does the money come from to ban or to get rid of the existing gas stoves and fireplaces? Okay, well, to get rid of the existing ones is a different question. Um, but the, the, if we start with the new builds, it's, it's going to cost more to put in infrastructure for gas um, uh, uh, methane uh, and put in all the electrical um, wiring that you need for the the rest of everything, including the fact that Vancouver's uh, city uh, building bylaw uh, is currently ban- um, banning the um, the uh, implementation of gas for uh, any space heating or hot water heating, which are typically in many of the existing buildings in Vancouver. So um, to put in two sets of infrastructure is way more expensive than to not. Um, so for new builds, it's actually less expensive and more efficient to do it. For retrofits, this is a, this is a bigger problem. And retrofitting, um, our city staff in Vancouver are looking at uh, the, the uh, rules that might say at a um, point of your gas hot water heater, for example, a needing replacement, don't replace that there will be a rule saying don't replace it um, with a gas uh, hot water heater, replace it with an electric hot water heater. And the same with space heating, although that might uh, take a little longer, but we are looking and in my motion, I call for staff to come back with us, uh, come back to council with a report saying how long do you think um, it'll take for us to actually be able to get the retrofit process um, fully going in the city because um, right now, 55% of the emissions, the GHGs in Vancouver, come from existing buildings, primarily from the burning of methane gas uh, for hot, uh, hot water and space heating. All right, Councillor, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, I really appreciate your interest in this. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Good morning. How are you today? I'm 
very good, thank you. How are you? I'm very good as well. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, we're talking to you about uh, your book and what you've done as far as writing your journey and what uh, you've gone through as a cancer survivor. Maybe take us back to the beginning. How did you first decide to write this book? Well, you know, some people, when they want to write a book, they they reflect um from when they're maybe 30 to when they were a child. But I just woke up one morning and I decided, hey, I have an important story that needs to be told. I'm going to write a book because it could help so many kids who are either dealing with cancer or who have a family member who's dealing with cancer. Wow, that's uh, what a, an amazing thing to think of, to wake up and to, to want to do that. Now, take us back a little bit as well, because you were quite young. You were, am I correct, that you were only three when you yourself, you were diagnosed with a really rare cancer? Yes. And what was that um, like? Well, it, it was pretty scary. It, it started when me and my mom were on a vacation and she started to hear me snore and then it kept increasing, so she took me to an ENT doctor, and then she said there was something really wrong with me, so we went to SickKids. And then, like, it, when you're a kid, it's really scary to get a bunch of pokes and needles, so it was pretty scary, and the medicines made me feel really sick. Yeah, I mean, it's scary. I think it's scary at any age. Nobody, uh, I don't like getting any needles or pokes or anything like that either. So uh, you you were diagnosed uh, at that age. And I understand too, and, and I think you wrote about this in the book, that you kind of referred to your cancer, you gave it a nickname or you gave it different names. So what was that? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, so I'd watched a show about a monkey and then... He took a trip inside his nose, and then instead of the germs having, like, names, like, you know, but they instead, they had, like, they were a rock band, and the lead singer was Toots. And whenever they'd play a chord on his guitar, then the person would start to sneeze. So I just decided, you know what, this seems similar. I'm going to call it Toots. Mm. And did you meet other kids or other people your age when you were going through cancer treatment as well? Yes, I made many good friends, both in Philadelphia and Mexico kids. Right. Oh, and I'm glad you mentioned that. So you actually had to travel to Philadelphia and travel uh, uh, there to, to get the cancer treatment, didn't you, or to get the radiation treatment? Yeah, it was very, it was an adventure. <laughs> And how old are you now, Cece? Um, I'd say I'm about 11 and one quarter. Nice. So, and so what does that put you in? Grade five? Yes. So tell us a little bit more about the book. You, you said you woke up one day and you wanted to share your experience and what you went through being diagnosed with cancer and and going through the treatment and, and coming out on, on the other side of that. How did you decide what you wanted to put in the book and what, what story or what parts of the story to share with people? Well, when you're three, you don't, like, I, I do remember a lot, but when you're three, you don't, have as much memory as what exactly happened. So I just put in everything that I could think of. And uh, so how long is the book? Um, well, I think it's about 98 pages and quite a few chapters. And why was it important for you to share this story and to help other people and other kids, maybe other people your age who maybe are just starting their treatment or have just learned that they too have a cancer diagnosis? Well, it can be really scary. So I wanted to give people who have cancer or starting to have cancer, I want to give them hope that it could be all right. That's amazing that you were able to do that and and put everything into this book and to help other people. How are you doing now? How are you feeling now? I'm feeling very well. I mean, a few side effects from the treatment um, still affect me today. Like, I have dry eyes and I have a few problems with my teeth, 
But I'd say overall, I'm very happy. And has this changed, do you think, or have, has what you've been through, uh, has it given you an idea maybe, I mean, obviously you can be an author, you're already an author. Has it maybe changed what you've thought about you might want to be when you're older? Yes, actually, because when I was younger, I wanted to be a human rights lawyer, but um, after I had cancer, a few years later, I got, like, I feel like I can, I understand what other people are going through, so I decided I wanted to be a child psychologist. Oh, wow, that's, uh, that's so amazing as well. So you'll go to school to become a child psychologist? Yes, but I also think it's important to be able to protect your family if they're sick. Like, yeah, so I'd probably also go to medical school just because. Just because. So maybe become a doctor as well, but focus on being a psychologist? Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's amazing. Cece, do you think you're going to write any more books? Actually, yes. Um, My brother and sister... They have they have dis- developmental disabilities, and they're like the most important things to me in the world, even though they're not things, they're people. Mm. So I want to write a book called She Prints about my sister as a spy, and I want to write a book called He Warrior about my brother, just as him. Huh. Well, I have no doubt that you will write those books for sure. Cece, what advice would you give to other kids or other families that maybe are going through what you went through and that scary time when being so young and getting that cancer diagnosis? What would you tell them? Make the best of every day and hope that tomorrow is better than this day. That is very, very good advice. Well, Cece, let's leave it there for today. But thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing this with us. And I can't wait to read your book. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.